Will you pray with me? Come, Holy Spirit, and fill the hearts of your faithful and kindle within us the fire of your love, and may my words and our hearts together glorify you, O God, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. In this week's New Church e-newsletter, I introduced our scripture for this morning, and then at the end of the introduction, I wrote, here's a clue. It's not about the money. And you know what? It really isn't about the money. As much as money sort of governs our whole lives, this story that we have made all about the money is not really just about the money. But the more I worked on this sermon for this week, the more I realized it's both. It is about the money, and it's not about the money. As with most of the teachings of Jesus, who, as a rabbi of Nazareth, often taught us using paradox, which is things like um, the first shall be last and the last shall be first, sayings that you have to wrestle with, the same is true of our text today. It is about money, but it's not about money. Our issue living as postmodern people in a capitalistic society is that we have to wrestle with this scripture because money and possessions are so much a part of our lives. And though this message has a lot more to do with than just about the wrestling with money and possessions, this scripture then extends beyond that and becomes much more challenging than we might have originally thought. After all, To give Caesar what is Caesar's is laid out for us very clearly in the United States tax code. We we know what we owe. To give to God what is God's is an altogether more challenging instruction. Over the last few weeks, as Matthew tells it, this story took place on the Monday of the original first Holy Week. Jesus is in Jerusalem. He is with his entourage of disciples. And the crowds have followed him. And now they have been occupying the temple in Jerusalem for the better part of two days. Jesus has taught in parables as only a great rabbi and prophet could teach. And um, the authorities have attempted to trip him up In several cases, they have tried to lure him into blasphemy, sinning against God. And now some religious leaders, the Pharisees, have come back around to him, bringing with them the Herodians. Now, the Herodians were an interesting subset of the people of Israel. The Herodians were supporters of Herod Antipas. And Herod Antipas, by the way, you remember the the Herod uh, at Jesus' birth who slaughtered the innocent children, this is the son of that Herod, Herod Antipas. And Herod Antipas is Rome's pulpit ruler, puppet ruler, and collaborator with the empire. So he's Jewish, but he is collaborating with the occupying army of Rome to rule over the people of Israel. In the background of this passage, We actually 
know that the prophet Zechariah has said some important words to us. I mean, a few uh, days before, uh, we hear from the prophet Zechariah, Lo, your king comes to you humble and riding on a donkey. And in the disruptive eviction of the money changers from the temple, there shall no longer be traitors in the house of the Lord of hosts that day, says the prophet Zechariah. So all of this is happening in a great dramatic stage play in the temple of Jerusalem. So though these Pharisees and Herodians introduced their question with compliments, we might say they are oily compliments, you know, oily. The religious and civic leaders here, the Pharisees and the Herodians respectively, have a malicious plan in mind. You see, they are all concerned with trapping Jesus. And if they can get Jesus to say that it's lawful to pay taxes to the emperor, then he'll offend the Pharisees. And more importantly, the crowds who fiercely oppose the Roman occupation. And on the other hand, if they can get Jesus to say that it's unlawful to pay taxes to Caesar, he'll offend the Herodians, colluders with the Romans, who will no doubt report him to the imperial civic authorities so that he's trapped. You might know that Jesus senses their efforts to trap him and doesn't answer right away. Instead, he asks them to show him a coin used for temple tax, a silver denarian, and to tell him whose likeness and title it bears. Now, we also have coins with great leaders on them, their image on them. We also have bills with great leaders and political figures on them. But Jesus is smart here because he actually accomplishes three things. The first is he shifts the spotlight off of him and onto his adversaries by asking them to produce a coin. The second thing he does is that he shows them that he doesn't have any coin. They have to produce the coin. And the third thing he does, which is very important, is to ask about the image and likeness of the coin, which is a pivot point in this this story. The denarian in those days likely featured the head of Tiberius Caesar, along with the inscription, Tiberius Caesar, son of the divine Augustus. From a Jewish point of view, then, The coin was both a graven image. Remember your Ten Commandments? You shall have no other God before me. You shall not have any idols. A graven image prohibited by the laws of Moses. And so these very Pharisees and Herodians, by producing a Roman coin in the temple, have actually sinned against God. Then comes this remarkable exchange. Whose image is on the coin? Jesus asks. Caesar's, they reply. And Jesus replies, 
the classic line that I bet most of us can say by heart. Then give, therefore, to Caesar the things that belong to Caesar, and give to God the things that belong to God. Some biblical scholars have interpreted this to mean that God's interests have nothing to do with money or taxes or government, but rather are exclusively focused on the spiritual realm. I will never forget attending a stewardship seminar with a bunch of pastors and our leader of that seminar trying to help us teach how we can help our churches and our people to be more generous people said, let me make sure you understand something. God is not just interested with 10% of your income. God cares about all your income. Gosh, the scales fell from my eyes. I mean, to know that uh, God cares about all of this, and not just this spiritual thing. Jesus is not setting up a world divided, financial and spiritual, political and religious. God cares about all of this as much as God cares about all of us. And hearing Jesus' answer, his opponents realize they've been outplayed, they've been outwitted. Jesus has done an end around. And they're amazed, the scripture says. And they are speechless, the story tells us. And they went away. And perhaps we are left speechless too. Because perhaps the challenge of the gospel for us today may be far more demanding than it was for the Pharisees and the Herodians. You and I live in a postmodern world. And what that means in terms of theological and uh, political and cultural understandings is that we've moved beyond a modern uh, element in which people thought that institutions and authorities and leaders were right. We now live in a world, a postmodern world, where everybody questions authority. We question authority in our institutions, in our churches, in our schools, in our government. We question uh, authority in our leaders. You know that. I don't have to tell you. And so we have to deal and live with the ambiguity of not having exact answers. We also live in a capitalistic state, a country where the almighty dollar reigns supreme. An article that I read this week pointed out that there is a continuing and growing divide, not just political, but financial. Those who have wealth are getting wealthier, and those who do not have wealth are getting poorer. And you know what? When I was in seminary years ago, when we asked our professor who taught systematic theology, what are the most pressing things that the church must address? This was like in the 90s. What are the most pressing things that the church must address? And the primary thing he talked about was the disparity between those who have wealth and those who do not. This is why the words and warnings of Father Richard Rohr that we heard read in our modern lesson are so very important. Sin is not just about individuals and our moral or immoral choices, though it is certainly that. 
But if we limit sin to that, we are missing a whole realm of what is going on in our world. Consequently, sin is actually about collective injustice. Think white privilege. Think racism. Collective injustice, as well as the pervasive spiritual evil that Paul, the Apostle Paul says, permeates the air we breathe. You know, um, you know what they say about fish is that fish don't know they're swimming in water. It's where they are, and that's us. We don't even realize the evil we are swimming in. Consequently, we are faced with trying to balance the reality of our existence in the wealthiest country in the world with our desire to live in relationship to God and others and creation. This is the great tilting balance that we are faced with. The challenge is the response to Jesus' implied question. What bears God's image? So, you know, he says, give to Caesar all that belongs to Caesar and to God all that belongs to God. This is after he's pointed out the image on the coin. Now, so the implied question is, what bears God's image? Well, we do. We do. Human beings, of course. Our whole lives can be given to God in the sense of doing justice, loving kindness, and walking humbly with the giver of all good things. A way of life that can only involve opposing in one form or another the dreadful injustices in our society. This is the politics of Jesus, that our giving to God what is God is a much much bigger category encompassing finance and politics and virtually everything else. Our bodies, our actions, our lives, our life together in community with each other and with all of creation. So is it lawful to obey the government? Sure. And by the same token, how much more lawful is it to obey the God of love, justice, and mercy? to care first and all for the least of these among us, the most vulnerable of our neighbors, and to treat each other with honor and respect. This passage is fascinating because it arrives right here in the last two weeks before we have an election. And the United States right now is perhaps the most polarized and caustic of any election in modern history, complete with controversies about taxes, law, religion, governmental authority, bad faith questions meant to trap adversaries, and a host of other connections with this story of Jesus in his own politic. So what light does this passage shed for us? on this election. The good news in this story today, the good news of the gospel, is that Jesus deftly slips through and turns the tables on the, his would-be entrap, entrappers. For now. 
they'll be back. But there are bigger themes at work here, including that Jesus has declared a new era. And perhaps in which the temple's holiness is newly accessible to all, freed of financial barriers and biases. Most significant and most important for us during this divisive election season is Jesus' view that what today we call religion and politics. On the one hand, Jesus points pointedly shuns politics in a narrow partisan sense. He doesn't side with those who sought to overthrow the Roman government through, uh, through rebellion. But nor does he side with those who collude with the occupiers, like the Herodians. Instead, he casts a theological and spiritual vision that is political in a much broader sense than we could ever imagine. Loving our neighbors and caring for God's creation is always and will always be inherently political. But it need not be partisan. It need not be mean-spirited. It need not be infused with oily hypocrisy and smug compliments. It need not be driven by desires to entrap our opponents, to embarrass them, or to hurl insults at them from afar. Jesus' vision is political precisely in the sense that it involves wanting the best for our neighbors around the world and across the aisle. It's political precisely in the sense that it starts and ends with the question of whom we belong to, whose image do we bear? God's grace for us today is that in the deepest, most important sense, we belong to God. We bear God's image. We are called to a higher politic that cares for each other as we care for ourselves, that strives to do justice and love kindness and walk humbly with God and neighbor and creation in all that we do. I love Thursday evenings because on Thursday evenings I gather with a group of faithful people of our church and beyond who want to pray together and, and learn from the scriptures. And, and we take the scripture that we'll be preached on and we read it and we talk about it. And when we talked on Thursday night, we decided that, that what has to happen in our world, because we live in a money-hungry world, a power-hungry world, is we've got to learn to balance. We've got to learn to balance our balance sheet. We've got to learn to balance out this pull of wealth and power and possessions with the love of God, God's politics. You know, uh, a long, uh, several years back, uh, I listened to a book on Audible called The Help that was later made into a movie that starred, um, among others, um, Viola Davis as Abilene Clark, Abilene Clark and Jessica Chastain as Hilly Holbrook. Hilly is a type A personality with a desire to control everything and everybody with a politic that is clearly born of white supremacy. Is finally, and that politic is finally exposed, exposed, and her racism is evident in a book that is written by Abilene Clark. In her effort to get revenge, Hilly convinces her friend, Abilene's employer, to fire Abilene separating Abilene not only from her income and her employment, but also from the little girl 
that she has helped to raise. It is at this point, near the end of the story, Abilene Clark gets right up in Hilly Holbrook's face and says, Ain't you tired, Miss Hilly? I just have to ask, aren't we tired? Aren't we tired of this? Thomas R. Kelly, a Quaker missionary, educator, speaker, and scholar, wrote in a book called A Testament of Devotion, Life is meant to be lived from the center, a divine center. Most of us, I fear, have not surrendered all else in order to attend to the holy within. The good news of the gospel for all of us is that there is a wider, deeper, more beautiful politic, bigger than any particular party or policy that Jesus and his prophets before him call us to live into. Whose image will you bear? How will you balance your balance sheet of living into the greater politic of Jesus, which is God's love for us and for our neighbors and all of creation? Hundreds of little bridges, a thousand little threads, a million tiny repairs in our communal fabric, born of love. May it be so. Amen.